All right, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Uh, this is Matthew's telling of what we have generally known as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday uh, story. A little bit different than some of the other Gospels. We'll refer kind of across different ones, but um, let's, let's read it together now. Again, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. There's few Bibles, or you can watch it on the screen uh, up there. It says this, when they, had come near, when they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them. He sat on them. A very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, which is save us, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Now you guys know this story, you've heard it a lot of times, uh, and all of them, all the different versions that happen across the Gospels bring up their own questions. This one, there is both a donkey and a colt, and somehow he rides them both. And you may be wondering, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> does it put one on each foot like a skis? I don't know what happened exactly. Is one tied behind the other? But you know what? It doesn't matter. There's a lot of context to the story. If you've been here a long time, you've heard me talk about this. But we are always talking about how important context is. The story I thought of this week in regards to that was when uh, my daughter Lillian was about the age that my son Chapman is now. She's probably three and a half years old or something. And at some point, uh, we decided to divide and conquer as parents. We had stuff to get done in the house. And so uh, my wife Sarah took Lillian for a walk in the neighborhood so that I could clean the kitchen, wash dishes, all that kind of thing. And so I was finishing up washing those dishes. And my sweet, beautiful, cute, three and a half year old daughter walked in the back door coming in from the walk. And she walked up to me and she said, Daddy. And so I looked at her and I said, yes. And I was looking at that perfect little three-and-a-half-year-old, giant Disney eyes, cute freckles, just beautiful little girl. And she said to me with not, not, she wasn't happy or sad, just kind of a very blank look. And she said to me, Daddy, we were on the walk. And I said, yeah. And she said, we were on the walk and I found sadness. And then all of time stopped for a moment. And my heart began to break inside my chest listening to it. And I thought, oh, no, like, what, what happened? How do we talk about this? Like, this is, this is where you've got to show up as a parent, right? My daughter found sadness on a walk. What does that mean? And so I say, well, well maybe you found sadness. And I'm, and I'm trying to start, I'm struggling as a parent to figure out. And then she reached in her pocket, she pulled out, and she opened her hand. And you can show the picture here. Um, <laughs> she found a toy that someone had dropped. <clears throat> This is a character from the movie Inside Out, and it's Sadness is the name of the character. She wasn't having an existential crisis. 
She literally found sadness on the walk. This is the best case scenario that could have happened in that situation, right? But context matters. I was getting ready to have a whole different conversation with her besides congratulations on the found toy. A found toy is your toy, right? If we don't understand the context, if we don't understand the background of the painting, then the details won't make sense. And for me, Palm Sunday is probably the, one of the best examples of this truth among popular stories that most of us grew up with and, and know from the Bible. Palm Sunday was my favorite Sunday growing up in church because we had permission to do something that we never had permission to do at my church growing up, which is move. Normally I was asked to spend a couple of hours completely still and quiet and well, even as a very spiritual and godly child, bored out of my freaking mind every week. Did not like church. Uh, in fact, I started babysitting in the, in the nursery by the time I was in fifth grade just because I'd rather listen to screaming babies than the sermon that my preacher had in store for me. But Palm Sunday, that was the good one. Palm Sunday, we had cool crafts. We got to wave around palm fronds, and I grew up in South Florida, so those were bountiful. We had the real thing. We would march, and we would wave them, and we would do all this at church. We got to do this stuff at church. I loved it. I knew at the age of five the words triumphal and entry, which didn't you enter my vocabulary in any other way except this Sunday once a year. I knew what they were. I knew what they meant. We knew this story. We loved this story. But we never talked about the context of what was happening here, why Jesus was doing this. Because if you just remove the fact that you're so familiar with it, you take it for granted. If you just remove that fact, what Jesus is doing here is truly and deeply weird. It is bizarre for a grown man to go and borrow a little donkey and colt. And I use borrow here. I don't know. Did he steal it? Did he borrow it? I'm not sure what this qualifies for legally. Maybe, Randy, you can tell me later on. I'm not sure what the law is here. But to take a little donkey and a colt and then parade into town apropos of nothing. Why do this? Why would someone even want to do that? Particularly Jesus. Remember what we know about Jesus at this point. At this point, we know Jesus can do some genuinely miraculous things, jaw-dropping stuff. We know that Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher, and he's a person of power. We know, we know that he's the Son of God, although not everyone doesn't know that yet. But we also know, despite all these things he can do that are so powerful, that are so jaw-dropping, that can draw a crowd, we also know that he constantly tells witnesses to these things to be quiet and not tell anyone. We know that every time he gathers a crowd, he says something that chases half of them away. He is this powerful rabbi, but he didn't like gawkers. He didn't like people that were there for the big show. So he's a powerful person who doesn't seem to like a giant crowd that isn't there for the right reasons. And then he throws himself this humiliating parade for a crowd. It, says, it seems beneath him for how powerful he is, and it seems out of character to do it in this public way. Why would Jesus do this? It is weird on its own. It's especially strange to me for Jesus. Except we never questioned it. We never thought about it. We never asked that question. I was just happy to be moving in church. But the thing that's important to know is that this act, what Jesus does here, is not out of nowhere. It's not apropos of nothing. If you've been here long, you've heard me talk a little bit about this history, and I won't go into deep detail, 
but I can't, I can't emphasize how important I think this is to understand before you can recognize what this story is, what is really happening in this story. Because there is another parade that happens that we just don't know about if we weren't there. Each year at this time, during the time of Passover, the city of Jerusalem swelled. It grew to many times its normal size because all these religious pilgrims, these Jewish pilgrims, would basically come into town to celebrate Passover near the temple. There was this huge group of Jews coming into town, and when they began to come into town, there would be this giant, impressive procession that Rome would put on coming in the opposite side of town as Jesus is coming in in our story today. Because Rome understood that the city was going to swell to several times its normal size, and it would be filled with zealous religious pilgrims. Rome understood that this was a prime place for some kind of rebellion to happen. And even though it was no real threat to Rome, they didn't want to have to deal with it. So Rome would put on this giant demonstration of strength to quell any thought of rebellion among the Jews. I won't go into all the details, but suffice to say that it was put on to starkly remind those present who was boss and whose city this was. They would do a military parade, the kind that would take a normal person's breath away. There would be hordes of the world's most impressive soldiers marching in unison into town. You would hear them coming from a long way off. Chariots would loudly roll by. War horses would stomp in the dirt. It would have been this deafening mix of metal and leather and the buzzing noise of a crowd of fighters. The biggest, loudest, scariest army in history marching right into the middle of your Passover party. And they wanted to make a spectacle of it. They wanted it to take your breath away. They wanted it to be a clear, unequivocal reminder of what is going to happen to anyone who decides to resist. They are showing what power looks like. They wanted to remind you that this is Rome City and no one else's. And if you forget it, you are going to regret it. And remember, Rome is every kingdom in the world's history. It's what they've always dreamed of becoming. They dominated, they overpowered, they had the best weapons, the biggest military. They were the pinnacle of human achievement. And while the Jewish people who were oppressed by this behemoth longed for their own king, Christos in Greek, they longed for their own Christos, their own king, to one day beat Rome, they didn't get that choice. Rome just simply installed their own king of the Jews, Herod. Rome got to decide who that was, not the Jews. They just installed Herod. Obviously, the Jewish people hated this. They wanted more than anything in the world for these tables to be reversed. They prayed and hoped and plotted and pleaded with God that one day the parade might be theirs, that Rome would have to sit and tremble and watch them walk into town. That's what the Jews hope will happen one day. That's what they're looking for. That's why they cry out, save us to God. And Jesus gives them this Pathetic demonstration. Jesus gives them this. Jesus gives them a wandering rabbi who heals beggars and bleeding women and the leprous. A man with no social capital, no money, no army on a borrowed or stolen donkey. He gives them a guy riding into the wrong side of town. He gives them a guy riding into town surrounded by a group of nobodies. 
who may foolishly actually still believe that he's going to take on Rome and fight them. Jesus is doing a parade on the other side of town that I think is meant to mock the big parade that everyone is used to. It's a joke. It's a parody of Rome's procession, of Rome's power. In fact, calling this a triumphal entry, it should be quotes around triumphal. It's the opposite of triumphalism. Prepare for a horrifying mental image I'm about to give you. It'd be akin to me covering my hands in talc, donning a unitard, and then trying to seriously compete in one of those Scandinavian strongman competitions. I'm sorry, I know you want to poke out your mind's eye right now, but, but go with me on this. I'm lacking sleep. There's a lot going on this week, so I apologize if this is too much. But it'd be like me joining one of those competitions. Now, no one could possibly think that I, had, I was taking a serious attempt at winning that competition. No way I can actually think I can overpower them, I can lift more than them, I can throw a keg or a goat or whatever it is they throw in those competitions any further than those guys. If you're cheering for me in that competition, you have to get the joke, right? I mean, you have to get it. Because if you're cheering for me in that Scandinavian strongman competition, and you really actually think I have a chance of winning this, then you are missing the point somehow. You're watching professional wrestling and thinking that something is actually a fight. This is theater, not competition. This is satire, not sport. This is not to say that Jesus doesn't take in, is not taking what he does entirely seriously. He is very serious about what he is doing. He's just not serious about the same things as everyone else. I think Jesus is thumbing his nose at Rome, not trying to outdo them. And I think this is an act that's meant to show something. In Jesus' effort here to show that the empire has no clothes, those in Jerusalem just don't get it, and they want him to steal the outfit. In the Gospel of Luke, after this scene, after he parades into Jerusalem, after he gets celebrated and people cry out Hosanna, then he immediately leaves the city again, and the next scene is Jesus outside the city, overlooking it and weeping. Jesus weeps. After the triumphal entry, Jesus weeps. And he says, if you only understood, if you could only understand where salvation, what salvation actually looks like, if you only understood how you could really achieve peace, but their hope is in the wrong place, in the wrong kind of king, they miss God altogether. All this happens right after my favorite scene where I get to run around in church and celebrate. The people of Jerusalem are so indoctrinated into the one way of seeing this world that somehow even this poor man riding a donkey somehow to them feels like confirmation of that brand of power that, that Rome wields and not a critique of it. I think understanding this context matters. This story is so important because it is clear that his followers don't get it. And I'm pretty convinced we haven't come that far from those Jesus weeps over. I mean, let's be honest. 
we still think God wants us to win the way we want to win. We still believe God wants us to be in charge on God's behalf. We mostly believe that God wants us to be in command and to set those people straight. Deep down, we still think God will trade that donkey one day for a fighter jet. We still believe that the answer to bad guys with chariots is a church with bigger chariots. The way to defeat evil in this world is to be bigger and better at the things it does. This parade makes another case altogether. While we still prioritize our winning, our dreams, our desire to finish on top, we have a God of the universe who becomes a baby and cries for its milk. We have a creator of all things who remained obscure for 90% of his short human life. We have the first mover of the cosmos who spits in the dirt, washes others' feet, and touches the untouchable. We have a king of kings that rides a donkey to his own death while weeping for those who will drive the nails in his hands just before he forgives them. This is something else altogether. This has always been about living and dying in a different, humbled, backwards, and sacrificial way. This is the kingdom Christ builds. It's about living in a manner that all of our systems, all of our political parties, all of our powers that be can make very little sense of. The parade shows Jesus as a competing claim to all that we assume and hold dear. And if we miss that, while we may still cheer for Jesus, we'll fail to follow him. We may miss the salvation that rides by us on a donkey. This morning I was putting the kind of last touches on this, and I found an article that just recently came out a couple weeks ago or a week ago. I got named Esau Macaulay. I like a good bit. He wrote an article this week entitled, Ponder Donkeys, Not Branches. As it turns out, I probably should have just read his article because it was better than the sermon I had written, but it was too late at that point. He points out that while the people along the parade chose palm branches as a symbol of what Jesus was up to in that procession, Jesus did not choose palm branches. Now, they chose palm branches because it recalled an ancient description about how you will celebrate after vanquishing your enemy. That's what the palm represents. It's victory over enemy. It's dominating those you despise. They chose the palm branches. Jesus chose a donkey. And that means something. He says this, and I quote, and I think I put this on a slide. Jesus picked a symbol that emphasized humility and lowliness instead of military strength. That fact should inform how we celebrate and remember his entry into Jerusalem. Of course, it would be impractical for every church across the globe to find a donkey to drag in and out of its sanctuary, but we can spend Palm Sunday reflecting on what it means to follow a king who rejected the way of violence. Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was not simply about a goal, God's rule over all things. He and the crowd agreed on that point. His earthly life and ministry were also about the means of accomplishing that goal, namely, sacrificial love. Jesus gave us not only the gift of forgiveness flowing through his passion and resurrection, but also a way to follow that, to follow. That way needs to inform our public and private witness. Stated differently, I'm worried that in our desire to defeat enemies, we're losing Christian virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. If we strive to establish God's rule 
through self-assertion over neighborly care, pragmatism over principle, and malice over love, then whatever else we accomplish, we are no longer following in the way of Jesus. God chose meekness, integrity, and love to gather his people. That is the message of Palm Sunday. For all the shouts of acclamation, Jesus never lost sight of the cross. This is the joke, the parody, the weird upside-down kingdom we celebrate today. We celebrate a Savior who mocks what we call power while allowing himself to be seemingly defeated by it. We celebrate that there is another way, a better way, to find those things we were made to enjoy and build in this world. We thank our Creator for the Messiah who rides a donkey to the cross. The one who absorbs our violence and through some kind of divine alchemy turns it into grace. We see the empire has no clothes. And so we put our hope where it belongs. And the God who always and only is self-emptying love. And when we can finally get that into our heads, we will have taken the first steps to finally joining Christ on his path in building his kingdom and not ours. Who knows, if we can get up to that kind of business, maybe one day Jesus will be out walking to survey all his children are building. And as he's walking, this time he won't find sadness. Let's pray. God, we confess that it makes little sense to us. It makes little sense that the God who created everything, the one who is power, doesn't grasp that power, doesn't take advantage of that opportunity. But instead, as we read earlier tonight, from Philippians, instead of considering equality of God something you grasp, made yourself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, you became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. God, we don't understand the path that you rode. But God, while we don't understand why, may we see it for the beautiful thing it is. When we cry, save us. Lord, may we be committed to salvation in the way you have provided it. May we be committed to the way that you save. May we be committed to the God who rides a donkey all the way to the cross. May we see that kingdom for the beautiful life-saving, world-changing thing that it is. God, we do love you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.